early in the spring when we round up the dogie. We mark them and brand them and bob off their tails. Round up the horses, load up the chuck wagon, then send the dogies out on the long trail. We'll be tired, I owe long, you little dogie. It's your misfortune and none of mine. And on the west, behind the town, the forest stretched no living man knew how far. That was the dead, sealed world of the vegetable kingdom, an uncharted continent choked with interlocking trees, living, dead, half-dead, their roots in bogs and swamps, strangling each other in the slow agony that had lasted for centuries. The forest was suffocation, annihilation. There, European man was quickly swallowed up in silence, distant mold, black mud, and the stinging swarms of insect life that breed in it. The only avenue of escape was along the river. The river was the only thing which lived, moved, glittered, changed. A highway along which men could travel, taste the sun and open air, feel freedom, join their fellows, reach the open sea, reach the world even. Uh, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, I'll be looking at the first half of Willa Cather's novel, Shadows on the Rock. Uh, that was written four years after Death Comes for the Archbishop in 1931. So we are now into the Great Depression. Uh, Willa Cather's final three novels were all written in, uh, in the context of the Great Depression. Uh, she died in 1947, uh, but her final novel, uh, Safia and the Slave Girl, was published in 1940. Uh, we will look at these final, the, the last three of her novels, uh, those two I mentioned, plus uh, Lucy Gayhart, uh, over the next four episodes. So we'll do two on Shadows of the Rock, one on Lucy Gayhart, and the one on Safia and the Slave Girl. And those are both a little bit shorter. Uh, they're all, you know, somewhere between. 150 or 100, I think Lucy Gayhart's only about 120 pages. Safia's a little bit longer. You know, they're all kind of, uh, it doesn't quite break up nicely into 100 page increments is what I'm saying. Um, but I'll do two on Shadows on the Rock and, and two on those final two novels. And we'll wrap up this series on, on Willa Cather. So Shadows on the Rocks, I, I don't have a whole lot to say about this novel, actually. It's, it's a little, it's got a lot of cool stuff in it. I, I really actually enjoy this novel, but it's not as thematically kind of rich, I, I guess, as Death Comes for the Archbishop. It, it's not quite so intense. It's, it's, it's much lighter. There is some brutality and some uh, viciousness in the backdrop of the novel, but the novel itself is, is kind of a, a snapshot. It's a vignette of a, of a small town, a small frontier town uh, in Quebec, um, in, in the early years of French colonization in Quebec, uh, before the British conquest, it's, it's set, I think, in 1697. Uh, and then there's kind of a, a few years in the future snapshot at the end of the novel. But it's all, set, it's all really set in just a few months in life of this town. And, and the focus is on, well, the first very first scene is set when the final boats of the season leave Quebec. So because of the winter, it's going to be the last ships until spring. And then most of the novel is set during, the, during that, that long winter. Um, and then towards the end, the ships start to come back. But it, it's all set in that, that period of time. Um, the main character, uh, the focus of the novel, is an uh, apothecary, a doctor essentially, named Euclid Auclair. Oh, Claire, I, I, as you know, I can't do these French pronunciations, so we're, you're going to have to suffer through my 
my horrible French pronunciation, uh, for at least one more novel, uh, at least one more Willa Cather novel. Uh, it's actually one reason I don't want to do uh, uh, Kate Chopin. I, I actually started reading Kate Chopin, and I just um, I almost need to take a French course before I, I read those novels. Um, anyways, uh, Eau Claire is his A-U-C-L-A-I-R is um, his name. And he's... Uh, He's, pretty, he's described as a philosopher apothecary. You know, he's essentially a doctor. He runs a, a medicine shop and he does various medical duties throughout the, the colony. So he's a very important figure. He has some standing. He, he's close to the governor. In fact, Quebec here is a very, very small community at this time. Unlike British North America, the French didn't send a huge amount of settlers over. Uh, there, there are, there is a kind of a farmer class of settlers around Quebec, but it wasn't like British North America where you had thousands and thousands of settlers and thousands of slaves uh, bringing their culture over, and you had all that various immigration from Germany. You know, the, British North America was a very different type of colony than, than Quebec was. Quebec was built more on the, the fur trade, of course. Um, yeah, but here you do see a, a, like a farming community being being established, a little little small town. Uh, so he's the main character, and then you have his daughter Cecile, and she's she's many, you know she's kind of the other main character, and we just follow these two, uh, this family. It's only two people. The mother died before the events of the novel begin, and we just follow them as they go through this winter. And the first half is all set in that, that winter I spoke of. The, in the second half of the novel, you get the, the return of the ships and, and um, some other things happen. Like Death Comes for the Archbishop, though, this doesn't have much of a plot. Um, I, I think the only real major plot point in the novel that, that's kind of a point of tension that needs a resolution is kind of the, the protagonist's plan to send Cecile back to France you know, to to finish her her education, to finish growing up in France, and she doesn't really want to. She wants to be part of this experiment in France, and eventually, it's decided she will stay in in Quebec. And so that's really the closest we get to a a major tension. There's a little conflict between two bishops, one who's a little bit more old-fashioned, another who's a little bit more uh, uh, materialist, a, l a little bit more secular, and that tension also needs to be resolved. There's some you know, issues with with class uh, conflict, with people being, you know, people's status in, being inherited from their mother. So there's a lot of cool slices of life about this, but none of it really comes together into a plot, right? In fact, the novel itself is broken up into, like Death Comes for the Archbishop, into a series of books, which are, are essentially a little more than chapters. In this case, you only have six of them. Um, and, and then there's an epilogue where it's like, 15 years later epilogue, but the six main books, the six main chapters are all set essentially within one year of, of the beginning, less than a year actually. So yeah, the, the date for this is 1697, so right at the end of the, of the 17th century. Um, at a time, of course, the king at the time is Louis XIV, and he does have an interest in colonization, but that's not his main focus. His main focus, of course, is his wars in Europe. This is right in the middle of the war of the Spanish secession, so at this time, is, is it? Maybe it's a little bit, maybe it's before that war. Yeah, sorry, I, that, that was a big mistake. 1701, the War of the Spanish Succession begins, but this is uh, the final year of, of 
the war will be about Augsburg, right? Or the Nine Years War, as it's sometimes called. This was the one of the the major wars of Louis the Fourteenth, of course, in his effort to try to uh, claim dominance in in Western Europe. And this was it. Really started with it was a war between the Dutch and the French, right? But it expanded into a war with England, especially after. Of course, you have the really the I think the precipitous cause of this conflict and its expansion was the Glorious Revolution in England, right? Which of course brought England into the Dutch alliance, and and then it became a, a part of the larger conflict between England and Spain in those years. So um, it is in that context, but you don't see any evidence of the war, right? The, if the war is affecting. Quebec, it's it's very much in the backdrop. You you don't really see that. The French state is there through the governor. The French have a presence in the story. Uh, the French state has a presence in the story, but it's all in the background. Really, the what Willa Cather is trying to do in this novel, it seems to me, is really dig into the this community as it's trying to live in this frontier setting. And that's why I read that passage. It's right from the first paragraph for the first um, book, the first chapter, which shows just how isolated these people felt. Like on the one hand, they had the ocean, which was closed off to them. And the other side, they had the forests, which were like, you know, basically a a barrier. But the river was their highway. The river is their highway. And of course, where they're located, the river takes them very far inland into North America. And then you have the Great Lakes, and then you know you probably know a little bit about the the adventures of the French fur trappers who went all throughout the Great Lakes. You know, of course, the French explored the Great Lakes at quite length, and the Mississippi River, um, Champlain, and those people were very active in that. And this is after all that took place. Um, you actually have, but this is far enough into the period of French colonization in Quebec that you have memory of the heroes, right? And the, the heroes of, of the French, of French Canada, for these people at least, are the Jesuit missionaries. People actually literally, they, they, they carry around the Jesuit relations and read them. Um, it's a wonderful source. I loved using it when I taught history classes um, about American history because uh, the Jesuit relations were simply the the collected documents and reports of the major Jesuit missionaries in, in French Canada, and and especially among the Huron and the Iroquois and other groups like that. It's a wonderful source on Indian history. It's a wonderful source on, on how Europeans saw Indians at the time. It's uh, a wonderful adventure novel in a lot of ways. A lot of these people were murdered, were, were, were killed by the Indians for their faith. You have Indian converts, a lot of drama in the Jesuit relations, a lot of interesting stuff on science and how people in the 18th, 17th century saw science. Wonderful, wonderful sources. But they, they're they so important to these people because they tell the story of the heroic age of, of the frontier, which is, of course, something that Willa Cather is very interested in. In many ways, these people are still part, or, or they're at the tail end of that heroic age of the French frontier, right? This town is really, you know, really still forming in many ways. It's still very much a frontier town. So this story kind of carries on what Willa Cather has been trying to do, I think, really since O Pioneers, which is try to talk about the transition from the heroic stage of frontier life to a more mature civilization. This actually might be the farthest back she goes into this. Um, Death Comes for the Archbishop also seems to go back to a really rough and wild frontier. We saw talked about that in the previous two episodes. This one also 
very, very early stages of, of French colonization in a lot of ways. Um, you know, back to the concept I brought up last time, you know, or when, when I talked about death comes for the archbishop, and that's the marchland, the idea of a marchland, an idea of, you know, people from Europe brought our culture with them, brought their ideas. In this case, Roman Catholicism is very key, as it was in the other novel. But, you know, once you're in that frontier setting, those traditions, they go their own way, right? And the struggle then is to keep those faiths, those traditions, to incorporate them into a new world environment and not go too off, off, off the path. I really get the feeling here of a strong commitment of these characters to hold on to these traditions, whether it's Catholicism or whether it's, uh, you know, even Christmas gift giving is a, is a thing in, in this novel. It was very sweet. Um, so I, I, that's what really the story is about, I think, is the, this community trying to hold on to these, these traditions in, in, in various ways in this very, very isolated world at a very, very isolated time of the year, right? That, those months in which they're not, they're literally not having any contact from the home country, right? Um, I, there's this one, I think this is early on in the story, actually, that we're told that they actually have a box, a present, a Christmas present from, from France, from some relatives, but they can't open it till Christmas, right? So this box just sits there waiting to be opened. And it's, it's really touching how they, you know, they're, they're just waiting for Christmas to, to sustain that tradition, right? To sustain that, that aspect of, of home life, right? And of course, our main character, um, Auclair, wants his daughter to go back to France to kind of be closer to that, that culture. And she instead chooses and, and insists on being a new worlder at the end. So that's the tension in this novel. It's very delightful. There's very little in this novel that's not fun to read, that's not enjoyable. It's, like I said, it's a lot of little slices of life. It's a lot of little vignettes of, of just the lives of these, of these settlers, um, you know, trapped in this, this frontier world uh, where the world exists outside of it, but they don't experience it that much. They get bits and pieces of it. Um, and, and once in a while, more brutal things do intervene and, and, and inject themselves. But none of the characters that we meet are, are odious. None of them are violent. It's not like some of the characters we met in Death Comes for the Archbishop, where you did have many, many brutal, violent, vicious characters, venal characters. This, it's, it's, it's much lighter and, and much more delightful in, in, I think, almost every way. It's, it's funner to read, I, I think, than... Then death comes for the archbishop, but it, it leaves me with a little bit less to, to say, perhaps. So book one, book one's just called The Apothecary. It's our introduction to our, our characters, um, you know, our setting, and really the highlight, what this, this chapter focuses on is the isolation these characters feel with the ships leaving for, for France. We learn that our, our hero, our, our main character, really, he doesn't do that much heroic, but, you know, it's just kind of following his life. He lives with his daughter, Cecile. He's a single dad because his wife died. He's the only major physician on this colony. The colony at the time is ruled by uh, Count de Frotance, who is a real historical character. Um, in addition to talking about the isolation of the frontier, Willa Catheter is very interested in, in the kind of the people that dwell, dwell on this frontier. And these are people who are, they're sometimes, uh, you know, the riffraff, sometimes they're the, the underclass, sometimes they're adventurers, 
Sometimes they're just people who, who've lost their way and need a new start. Um, here, I'll, I'll read a bit of this. Um, Many unserviceable men had come, to be sure, but they were usually adventurers who disliked skilled, honest work. Wanted to fight the Iroquois or traffic in beaver skins or live a free life hunting game in the woods. This Blinker, now Blinker's a guy that kind of works for this family. This Blinker had never had a gun in his hands. He had such a horror of the forest that he would not even go into the nearby woods and help fell trees for firewood. And his fear of the Indians was one of the bywords of Mountain Hill. Pigeons used to tell his customers that if the Count went to chastise the Iroquois behind the Karakib, Blinker would hide in his cave in Quebec. Blinker protested that he had been warned in a dream that he'd be taken prisoner and tortured by the Indians. Um, what the, Now, Blinker, we learn later, really did have traumatic experiences in life and he has good reasons to kind of be terrified of the woods. He has done horrible things. He has done traumatic things. And this has created a psychological imprint on him. But, you know, he's one of the types of people who gravitate to this, this new world environment. So it's a really, it's a motley crew of people. And I think that is also a very delightful aspect of, of, of the novel. We meet some of them um, kind of coming and going in the story. Uh, like I suggested before, the major tension in the novel is the feud between the two bishops. Uh, in fact, there's several layers of it. There's a feud between the bishop, Laval, and the count, kind of a conflict between the religion and the secular. Um, of course, I believe at this time, this is already after Louis XIV uh, got the deal with the pope that he would appoint the French bishops. And I think that remained the way things were for... Um, for the for the rest of France history until until they completely uh, when the, the the government completely secularized themselves. Um, the other conflict is between the, the two bishops that are there, um, Laval and and Saint Valère, um, and one's younger, one's older, one's a little bit more materialistic. It's not a major conflict though. It's not something that's really driving the plot in any way. It's just in the backdrop. It's just there in the background. Uh, we meet other characters like we have very very religious characters. Uh, not, I'm not thinking here of the bishop, but I'm thinking of a woman, uh, what's her name, Catherine de Saint-Augustine, very, very devoted to religion. Uh, and that's, you know, and she's, there's a couple characters like this who, who fulfill that deeply spiritual role. I mean, our main characters are religious too, but, but there's some people who found in this frontier a way to, to live an authentically pure, devoted religious life. Here's how this character is, is, is described. Catherine de Saint-Augustin had begun her novitiate with uh, uh, hoteliers at Boyau when she was 11 and a half years of age. And by the time she was 14, she was already in her heart vowed to Canada. The letters and relations of the Jesuit missionaries eagerly read in all religious houses in France had fired her bold imagination and she begged to be sent to save the souls of the savages. Her superiors discouraged her and forbade her to cherish this desire. Catherine's youth and bodily frailness were against her, and while she went with her tasks in the monastery, this wish, this hope was always with her. One day when she was peeling vegetables in the novice's refectory, she cut her hand and seeing the blood flow, she dipped her finger in it and wrote upon the table. Then she wrote some religious, um, I think she writes her name there. It's, all, it's, in, it's in French. Um, okay. Uh, that's more or less chapter one. It's kind of setting up the place in these characters. Book two, chapter two, book two. I keep saying chapter. She, Catherine uses books in these later novels for some reason. Um, 
It's called Cecile and, and Jacques. Um, Jacques's a young boy. Cecile, we already know. Jacques's a young boy who basically is, is a prostitute's son. And he's like the, one of the poorest kids in town. Uh, the mother is basically a, a pariah, not really accepted. Um, but probably maybe more accepted here than she would be in other settings. So there is kind of a, a chance for her in the new world that maybe she wouldn't have had elsewhere. Um, so this woman is Toinette Gaw, Antoinette Gaw, um, and she's described as quite irreclaimable. Uh, quote, Antoinette was Canadian born. Her mother had been one of the King's girls, as they were called. 30 years ago, King Louis had sent several hundred young French women up to Canada to marry the bachelors uh, in the disbanded regiment. Many of these girls were orphans of poor girls of good character, but some were bad enough, and Toinette's mother proved one of the worst. She had one daughter, this Toinette, as pretty, as, as worthless a girl as ever made eyes at sailors in the seaport town in France. It once happened that Toinette fell in love, and she made great promises of reform. One of the hands of the La Gronde, a ship, had come down with a fever in Quebec and was lying sick in the Hotel Dieu when his ship sailed for France. After he was discharged from the hospital, he found himself homeless in a frontier town of winter, too weak to work. Toinette took him in, drove her old sweethearts away, and married him. But soon after this boy Jacques was born, she returned to her old ways and her husband disappeared. So that's her story. And basically, the plot of this chapter is simply Cecile trying to get Jacques' shoes because uh, his shoes are no good. And so she actually goes to the governor, goes to the, the count, and asks for money to buy, sh you know, basically charity money to buy shoes for him. And then she takes him, gets some shoes, takes him to... Uh, uh, a cobbler. Now he, this Toinette shows up and says, we don't want charity. What are you doing? But she eventually accepts it. She gets fitted for shoes and he, he gets, he finally gets these new shoes. So we, we, we meet the cobbler. We, we, we have a scene with the count and we meet Jock, we meet Toinette. So we meet all these characters in the course of this rather nice chapter. It's really, really sweet uh, how Cecile spends so much time just trying to, to, help this boy even while she has all these burdens of helping her father. She's, she goes on various missions for her father. Um, but in her meantime, she collects this money, gets from the count, goes to the cobbler and, and gets her shoes. Gets some shoes. Uh, the chapter ends with, with Christmas time and Jacques comes out on Christmas day and, and she opens up this present and this present she got from France, this one that's been sitting on this, uh, shelf the whole time turns out to be like a nativity scene and Jacques actually adds something to the nativity scene kind of playing his role and so everyone has kind of a nice Christmas here um, it's a fairly long chapter it's a big yeah I don't know it's almost 50 pages so it's a big chunk of the whole bulk of the novel but it's just following Cecilia she does this this good deed the third chapter in Shadows on the Earth the third book I keep doing this the third book is called The Long Winter now here I, I think the main tension in this chapter is between science and miracles and, and science and religion. And, and it, it dwells within this character, our main character, who is a scientist. He's an apothecary, a doctor. And, and there's even debates here about the progress of science and, and medicine. Like he's a bit of an old timer, like an old fuddy-duddy, an old fogey in terms of medical knowledge. He doesn't think all the new approaches are, are necessarily best. So he's a bit conservative on this. But he does seem to be very empirically minded, and he, he wants to do what works, and he, he relies on what to work, what works. So he, he doesn't really trust all the new ideas from France that, that come in. Um, 
There's even a conversation in this chapter somewhere where um, he's talking about the fact that in France they sometimes actually use ground up human bone in medicine and how he doesn't do that. Sorry, I had to shut it off a little bit because I'm on first floor and you know, people here in China tend to be pretty loud when they're on the streets. They'll just, uh, even though they're next to each other, sometimes they, they, they seem to need to talk quite loudly at each other and, and loud enough that it, it, the sound filters into my room. So I had to take a few minutes until uh, the sound cleared out. Um, anyways, I was talking about the, this, this, how he doesn't want to use the, you know, pills like medicine made from, from human bones, right? But it's almost kind of, almost like a type of mysticism involved in the use of these human bones as, as, as medicine. Um, but we, we see the religious sentiment a lot in this chapter. We, we see like the nature of this new bishop and his kind of a little bit more materialistic approach. In contrast, we get the story of, of, of Jane. Um, another, uh, like she's a recluse, she's a religious rec, rec, recluse, but she, her story is, we get her whole backstory and she was set to marry or her father, she was like kind of pretty and the father had this dowry prepared for her, you know, to when she married and she decides not to marry. She essentially says she's going to marry Christ. She's going to marry the church. And instead the dowry then just becomes a donation she wants to give, you know, to, to the convent. So uh, she's an example of, of the extreme uh, religious sentiment that's alive and well in these, in these frontier regions. Um, now, in contrast, we're given the, finally the backstory of, of Blinker. Um, and Blinker, it turns out, this guy who, who's kind of been TSPTSD, essentially, it seems to me, um, but he was a torturer for the king. Uh, that was his job, and he literally did torture people and he remembers this woman who I presume is innocent or at least he feels really bad about torturing her and this is what led him to to leave he actually had like f physiological problems like problems with his teeth and his bones and his jaw like like infected and stuff as a result of his psychological torment from his from his um, behavior as a torturer and He's, you know, he comes to the new world to get away from his reputation as a as a torturer. But you can still see in almost everything he does the 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 endurance of his, of the torment um, and of what he did and the guilt still shapes him. But the new world becomes a way for him to to create a new life for himself. Um, towards the end of chapter three, we start to get the signs that spring is coming back. So uh, the the colony can start to be hopeful that that. The ships will come back. They'll get word from France. They'll, they'll, you know, life will change when when the long winter ends. So um, I'll look at the final three chapters of Shadows on the Rock next next time in the next episode. Um, it's it won't be a long episode, I don't think, because like I said, this this novel is kind of uh, light and delightful. It, it's not as intense maybe as some of the other works we've looked at here. So anyways, um, I'm sure there's a lot in this novel that I didn't talk about or I messed up or I misinterpreted. So please leave your thoughts below. Uh, let me know what you think. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Uh, so I'll see you next time with the final three chapters of Shadows on the Rock by Willa Cather. See you then. Your was a raised away down in Texas Where the jensen weed and the sanders grow 
We'll feed you up on prickly pear foil and then send you open to old Idaho. Whoopie-tie-i-o, get along, you little doggy, it's your misfortune in Panama. 